It's a question I've asked Tanya Riley, one of our Cyber Scoop reporters, several times. But now that she's sitting across from me in our podcast studio, I'm going to ask it one more time. What is a cryptocurrency mixer, Tanya? Hey, Mike. So as you might know, cryptocurrency is very traceable. So if I'm a bad guy, like, say, a ransomware hacker who just got a big payout, I don't want the FBI to be able to trace it back to me. So what do I do? I put that money in a cryptocurrency tracer. So think about it this way. I'm putting all my virtual pennies into one big tumbler with everyone else's virtual pennies. And when they come out, you can't tell whose is whose. So essentially, it's a way of laundering funds for cyber criminals or just anyone who doesn't want the government in their business. But it doesn't always work, right? Because these people are still being traced. Right. Well, it depends on how good the technology is and how good the mixer is. So the more people in the mixer, the more virtual currency, the harder it is to trace. Not everything's so easy. Say North Korea is putting a huge amount in there. It takes a lot to kind of block that out. We are going to talk about that a little bit more later in the episode with Cynthia Kaiser, a senior official with the FBI, who's going to be telling us all about the interesting, innovative ways the Bureau is tracking cyber criminals, looking at mixers, taking down ransomware groups, and a lot more. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, editor-in-chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. Tanya, we're going to get into some of the recent news stories that you've been tracking and writing about over the past week or so. Yeah, so I think the big thing on everyone's mind this past week, Saturday, was the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision to strike down Roe v. Wade, reversing the constitutional right to abortion. As a privacy reporter, one thing I saw last year is the way this decision really brought to the forefront how technology is collecting data around reproductive health choices and sexual health choices. We're talking everything from period tracker apps to using a Google map to get to an abortion clinic, how that data could be used as evidence by these states looking to prosecute abortion seekers. And in response, we saw lawmakers really react with legislation like the My Body, My Data Act by California Representative Sarah Jacobs, a member of Congress, that would limit how companies, different entities, collect reproductive and sexual health data. And I think knowing how Congress has moved forward with privacy legislation, we know where that went, which is nowhere. Right. So there's been privacy legislation sitting in Congress, going nowhere, maybe being talked about, but not moving very far, right? Why is that? What's going on with the privacy legislation that's keeping it from being passed? I think the important thing to understand about last summer is we were already kind of in the peak of hot privacy summer, as some of my colleagues called it. We have federal privacy legislation in the committee up for a vote, and it did pass out of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, but for a variety of reasons did not get to a floor vote. There was opposition in the Senate. One thing that's been a big snafu is whether or not this legislation should preempt what states are doing, like California, which already has its own privacy legislation. 
privacy is a very bipartisan issue, but when we get to some of the nitty-gritty details, we just still see a lot of disagreement. And unfortunately, concerns around the Dobbs decision did not necessarily drive that forward. So Tanya, thinking back to when the Dobbs decision first came out a year ago, there were a lot of concerns around how reproductive health data was going to be used and if it could be weaponized against people, as you talked about. Were some of those concerns realized? Well, it's important to note that even before the Dobbs decision, data like private messages, emails were being used in prosecutions. Shortly after the Dobbs decision, we saw that this was already happening. There was a case in Nebraska where police served Facebook a warrant for a teenager and her mother's private messages. Essentially, that turned out to be related to an abortion investigation. Facebook didn't know that at the time, and that tends to be one of the problems with these investigations. It's not always clear that it's related to an abortion. It could be something like child endangerment or murder. And so when that came out, it really created a lot of concerns about, well, should Facebook be encrypting all of its messaging, something that's already looking into what kind of messaging app should you be using when you're talking about this sensitive information? There was another more recent lawsuit this March. This man, he brought a lawsuit against three women that he said helped his wife obtain an abortion in Texas. And he, in the lawsuit, cited unencrypted text messages. So we haven't seen something like someone's period tracker app data being used, one of the things that came up early in conversations. But it's too early to rule out seeing some of this stuff. We just haven't seen all these cases come into fruition yet. Yeah, and for, I mean, for a lot more details, your story on this came out recently. So I would encourage people to look for that. What other stories are you tracking this week? Or what else do you think is interesting that you've been reading? I'm totally just wilded out by this crazy story our colleague AJ wrote this week about this Iranian hacking group. I'm going to totally butcher the name. Can you pronounce the name? I don't know. Can you pronounce the name, Mike? I'm I'm not going (laughs) to even try. But it's Gayam Sarnaguni. They've kind of entered this fray of these number of Iranian hacking groups that have released these damaging hack and leak operations against the government. These guys had a real treasure trove of documents. They've claimed to have stolen tens of thousands of documents, including diplomatic correspondence, documents related to the country's nuclear program, documents showing that Iran has been evading sanctions. It's just kind of this crazy case that AJ often writes about these kind of groups, but of this group that, you know, we don't quite know what their political affiliations are. Clearly, they do not like the government releasing all this material. The government has denied that these materials are real. So, yeah, it's just one of these other kind of Wild West cases of these hacking groups out there that are trying to cause some political chaos. So, yeah, I mean, that article that AJ wrote was super fascinating. I learned so much. I was really interested in the whole internal dynamics and just the various hacking groups that are operating in Iran and very active and have various targets and really interested to see where all that goes. I know another story you've been tracking is something the Washington Post wrote about meta and AI, which of course, anything AI is our favorite topic these days. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Meta recently made a splash in the AI market by releasing its open source technology called Llama, which our readers will remember actually leaked back in March, causing a little bit of chaos. And now as the Washington Post is reporting, it's causing even more chaos. People are using this open source AI to build sex chatbots and, you know, some good things too, like medical chatbots. But it's kind of raised this debate in the AI community about open source AI. And do you kind of moderate how users use it? Do you let them use it how they want and lead to innovation? And as we know, Congress and the White House are looking more at regulating AI. 
And open source AI is definitely going to be a big part of that conversation because we see it leading to some good things. We've also seen it leading to some pretty horrible things like child exploitation materials, revenge porn. So it becomes this question, you know, of this very quickly emerging technology. How do you bring it to the public in a responsible way? AI has been open source for a long time, but some of this more generative AI meta is the first example we've seen of this very unregulated model. So it'll be really interesting to see how they respond, how users are using it, and maybe if they're going to change their terms a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we're all living in this giant AI experiment that no one knows exactly what's going to happen. All of these sort of bad things keep popping up when we figure out we're trying to play whack-a-mole with coming up with fixes. Do you think that Congress is in place to pass any kind of regulation around AI to get in front of any of these issues? I mean, they're certainly trying. I think one regulation that would really apply in this context is Richard Blumenthal and Josh Hawley introduced legislation last week that would strip kind of... So social media companies have liability protections from user-generated content. What this law that they're introducing would do would basically remove those liability protections from AI-generated content. And there's a lot of questions over that actually works constitutionally, but certainly we see a lot of different proposals coming out. And I think certainly within the next few months, we'll see some serious legislative debate. little pessimistic on if we're going to see actual regulation anytime soon. So then if last summer was a hot privacy summer, what is this summer going to be? I don't know. I think we should ask an AI chatbot. Find out. Okay. We'll do that. Thanks so much, Tanya Riley. Thanks, Mike. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com slash security to access resources and expertise to get started today. This week, we're going to sit down and talk with Cynthia Kaiser, senior leader at the FBI's cyber division. She's worked on technology and counterintelligence over the past 15 years, and most recently is working on some of the most interesting and important cases around ransomware. I am super excited to chat with you today. I know you've been extremely busy lately, so I appreciate you taking the time. We want to dig into the bigger topic of ransomware, some of the ransomware investigations, that you all have completed and have ongoing at the FBI have just been uh, really interesting. But before we get into sort of the nitty of what you're doing on the enforcement side and the investigations around ransomware, I want to sort of step back and get your assessment of just how big of a problem ransomware is today. Ransomware is obviously a significant threat, and it's been for the last several years. Now, we know that Ransomware actors don't care who they target. In fact, they're looking to target entities that have little tolerance for downtime. So that includes hospitals or just critical infrastructure entities. If they think you can't live without your networks or you can't operate without your networks, they're going to go after you. And, you know, I think that's what makes it so insidious and difficult is because they're just constantly targeting. There's new variants all the time. There's new actors, affiliates going between the different variants which makes it a really difficult ecosystem. And I think as we get into talking about what the FBI is doing about it, it's that ecosystem concept that we really need to think about. It's not just a person developing something and then deploying it. It's a lot of different people working across variants, working across services, cryptocurrency exchanges, marketplaces. That's that broader effort 
among all of the criminals, that's really putting a lot of U.S. networks at risk. So where are these people? Where are they located? Where are these attacks coming from? They come globally. A lot of them do come from Russia or Russian-speaking countries. And I think that that bears out in a lot of the different enforcement actions that we've announced recently. You know, I see all of this news all the time, right? And so do you. you like every day you, you look on Twitter or you, I get an email or somebody's talking about some new ransomware attack, some new ransomware group. It just seems an insurmountable task, right, to fight against this. So it's been going on for a while. Are you finding success in, you know, battling some of the more recent actions that you've taken on? So I think we realized early on that a whack-a-mole approach doesn't work. Take one ransomware actor down, another one pops up, another one, as you noted, variants coming out all the time. So what we're really looking to do is tighten the net around cyber criminals and around the cyber criminal ecosystem. And we do that by targeting those key services that they're using. And you've seen that throughout many of the actions that we've done recently, and that includes not just, say, the Hive takedown, which I know we've all talked about a lot, but cryptocurrency exchanges like Chipmixer, which it was a, you know, a mixing service that was used by not just ransomware actors. It was used by the GRU. It was used by North Koreans. Cryptocurrency mixer. For those who don't know, explain that really quickly. Think, you know, modern day money laundering. You put something from one of your wallets into a mixer and it allows it to come out the other side in a more anonymous way. Those services are something you guys have been looking more closely at in the past few years, right? Absolutely. And, you know, there are legitimate purposes for some of that as well, but a lot of nefarious purposes. And so we've been looking at that because that's a way for actors to try to get away from the monitoring that law enforcement or many of our partners can do. And it's a way for them to really try to cash out those proceeds. So let's dig into that Hive takedown that you mentioned. What is Hive? first of all, or what was Hive. <laughs> and so st- let's start there. And then we could, I'm really interested in just the process. I know this was not maybe a typical operation, but it is sort of indicative of where you might be going in future operations against ransomware groups. I would say, you know, I think it's really typical for the work that's being done across the Bureau every day. And what was great here is how public we can be about our successes. So Hive was a prolific ransomware variant that had targeted the hospitals, educational facilities, et cetera. And they had done just really thousands of victims worldwide. So what we were able to do through our operation is we were able to go through and do little steps along the way, right? The really hard technical work, really hard investigative work to obtain access to a lot of the, you know, backend information from Hive, to be able then to sit there and gather information for months without them knowing anything. And we were able to proactively then provide decryptors to victims, hundreds of victims across the U.S., offer it to over 1,300 victims worldwide. And what a decryptor is, if your audience doesn't know, is it, you know, ransomware seizes it up and this is the way you can get your computer back. So we were able to proactively go out to victims or even targeted entities who maybe didn't even know that they were targeted yet and provide them with those decryptors so that they didn't have to pay the ransomware actors. 
Wow, that's amazing. And I mean, I must have been a very relieving phone call to get from somebody who's just become a victim of ransomware because typically, well, often that's not what happens, right? So what was that like? Well, I mean, I think it was great for people to be able to get that value from the FBI. And I think it really demonstrated the value that the FBI brings into these engagements where it's not just Hive that we have a decryptor capability for, it's others, or we know of the private sector companies that have those decryptors and we can play matchmaker, ensure you know where to go if you want that decryptor. And you know that's a really key element for anyone who's been victimized by these groups is to be able to get their networks back, not have to pay that ransom, and know that they're going to be able to kind of see the other side, keep their business going, not suffer those ill effects on the business, even if you pay a ransom or you are able to get from your backups, you still have a lot of negative effects from those attacks. And, you know, we were able to head those off. And it's a great conversation to have with everybody because normally people might be coming to us and saying, hey, something's hit me or, hey, I've been attacked. But we were able to go proactively to people and get ahead of that. And it was also nice to have data. So we, because we had access and understood all of the victims that were being targeted, we were also able to compare that to what was actually being reported to the FBI. And that's quite different, right? It is. It is. And we always know there's underreporting, but we can't really quantify that. But in this case, we could. We saw that about 20% of those victims had reported or did report in to the FBI. And so that gives us a better understanding of what that scale might be and It also gives us an understanding of like how we need to be closer engaging with target entities, potential victims, or just private sector writ large to ensure that we're able to get a better, more comprehensive view of the ecosystem. Why aren't people reporting to the FBI when they've become victims of ransomware? I think part of that is they're not sure what they are getting when they come. And, you know, some of it might be scared. When your business is under attack, you're worried, you might have to shutter your business. Maybe that's just not the first thing they're thinking about. And I think we want to try to shift that narrative. One part of that is telling people we have other capabilities. So it's not just decryptors, but we know that malicious actors come back and try to reinfect victims that they've done before. So when you call the FBI, we're able to say, hey, this is this group this is how they might come try to reinfect you or they might try to have moved laterally and go here. And we're able to provide some of that context, especially even some of the classified context that we have to try to help prevent reinfection. We need to get that message out more about the societal benefit to reporting. We can't help others if we don't hear from you and we can't help you if we don't hear from others. So being able to understand that you might be the first one to experience an attack, but you're not going to be the last. And the quicker we can get that all out there, the safer everybody is. And what we've been reporting on is how ransomware operators are becoming more sort of aggressive. We've seen news about hospital attacks and groups sort of, I don't know, just leaking the information, right, to entice people to pay the ransom. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Absolutely. I think the terms we'll end up using is double extortion or triple extortion. And, you know, that effectively means... They may threaten to leak information or they will leak information if you don't pay the ransom. And then that kind of triple element is we actually see ransomware actors threatening business owners, customers, and up to, you know, near harassment levels to get that payout from these entities. And I think that that's why that front end of 
ensuring that there's cyber hygiene across the network, that you're able to defend across the network, but also you're able to know who to contact immediately when an attack happens so that there's not downtime and we don't necessarily give these nefarious actors the space to conduct these horrible activities. So with the Hive investigation, you don't expect to see arrests made, do you? Or people sitting in court or going to jail as a result of this? Does that even matter? Yeah, I mean, I think, number one, people actually might be surprised to know how many people we put behind bars that do result from cyber criminal investigations, but that's not the point. If we think an arrest is both doable and effective, of course we're going to pursue it. And we're not going to care if it's a U.S. arrest, a Ukrainian arrest. It, It doesn't matter where it happens. It matters, you know, that we get actors off the streets. But broader than that, taking away their infrastructure, taking away their money, taking away the way in which they cash out that money is more effective. And it's more effective when it's not just the FBI doing it. When our international partners are involved, when our IC and um, U.S. government partners are involved, that's where we have that maximum benefit against actors. And that's the point. The point is to restrict them. The point is, if they're collecting all this money, but they can't cash it out and use it, they're effectively stuffing it under a mattress. And we want to restrict their ability to use that so that they stop attacking in the future. Yeah, so the FBI has its own hackers, right? I mean, you know, the people who are in the weeds, digging into the investigation, sort of going on the offense against the bad guys. Is that something you have enough of within the the Bureau? We need more technically talented individuals to join the FBI. So that means computer scientists, data analysts, just technically trained agents or analysts, because what we are effectively doing is developing tools. So like you saw with our Operation Medusa, developing technical tools, and that was against the Russian and Russian intelligence service, we're developing tools to be able to very selectively remove malware from networks, close back doors, get the adversary off U.S. networks. And to be able to do that takes a lot of work, a lot of technically talented folks We also need technically talented folks to be able to deploy to sites through our cyber action teams, gather information, help point out how to remediate. And, you know, there is a wide gap, just like in the private sector, just like throughout a lot of the U.S. government, in getting some of those great technically talented folks on board. And it's something we're working on every day. I do want to talk about that Medusa operation you just mentioned. That was also a really fascinating one, sort of read a bit like a, you know, spy thriller when I was reading the stories and the FBI, you know, the the court documents. Walk us through that. So I really appreciate that question because I think FBI's leadership on Operation Medusa really exemplifies for everybody out there just how the FBI is approaching these threats, which is first the range of authorities the FBI can bring to the table to disrupt harmful activity, the range of partners we work with from the intelligence community to DOD to private industry to global law enforcement, and then Third, our willingness to disrupt malicious activity through a variety of actions that include but go well beyond, as we talked about, arrests and indictments. So backing up, on May 8th, the FBI led a multi-agency joint cyber operation to globally disrupt Snake, the most sophisticated cyber espionage tool designed by the Russian Federal Security Service, known as the FSB, more colloquially. And the FSB had used this tool for long-term intelligence collection for sensitive targets across the world, including 
government networks, research facilities, and journalists. So our first step is the FBI developed technical capabilities and deployed those capabilities in collaboration with U.S. and international partners that ultimately mitigated the malware by disrupting its critical functions, rendering it inoperable in the U.S. and abroad. So then the next day, the FBI, along with many of our U.S. and 5 Eye partners, published a joint cybersecurity advisory titled Hunting Russian Intelligence Snake Malware. So if listeners haven't read it, they should. I mean, it really is a phenomenal piece of cyber threat intelligence because it not only goes into incredible detail uh, about the malware itself and how to mitigate, but it also lays out all of our evidence for connecting it to Center 16 within the Russian FSB. So that CSA can be found on ic3.gov. You can follow FBI on link, cyber on LinkedIn, where we post a lot of that material. And I think, you know, this public attribution, this operation, it really fits into that broader U.S. government cyber strategy to impose costs on malicious actors. Yeah, fascinating read. Definitely worth looking at and super important for people to figure out now that that's been exposed, how to protect themselves against these, you know, vulnerabilities, patch systems and that sort of thing. I'm curious to know, what was the timeline like from when that started to when the public found out about it? Years. Yeah, well, we're monitoring malware, getting a better sense of what it's doing, what it can do. This malware was very selectively deployed, not necessarily a broad sweeping campaign. And so it takes a long time to obtain the right artifacts, technical artifacts, to get the right samples, to find it at the right time, to then do the technical evaluations to be able to figure out ways to mitigate it and then coordinate with our partners so that we're not just kind of eradicating a few instances in the U.S., but it's going rampant globally. It gets better, it comes back to the U.S. We want to create these operations that have to be the most effective they can be. And that did take a lot of time. But I think a lot of that really is that technical back-end, really hard work that overall was just a phenomenal effort among a really great group of people. Yeah, so you're in the thick of this every day looking at threats, many that we're not even aware of yet, unless you want to tell us today <laughs> what the next operation is, I would appreciate that. But like, from your point of view, are you positive that some of the things you're doing are going to make positive change? Or are we just sort of fighting against this tidal wave of threats and we're just keeping your head above water? I mean, sometimes it can sort of seem like that. What's your view on sort of where things are going, how things are improving? Well, I mean, I think like most of your listeners, the FBI sees a constant stream of cyber threats that highlight the time, money, and talent that our adversaries are putting into making us less safe. And with that, I feel positive that we're developing good partnerships that are going to enable us to be better in the future. By that, I mean, I think our private sector partnerships have never been stronger. Our relationships across the U.S. government have never been stronger. And the types of operations that we've been able to do really, I'd say, since 2020 are phenomenal examples of operations that have real impacts. Now, they're not enough. We need to do more of them. 
And we're working on doing more of them, not just us, but enabling any partner to do more of them. Part of that's international capacity building, you know, working with our partners, ensuring they're capable of combating cyber threats because cyber has no borders. And part of that is ensuring that we're sharing to the maximum extent we can with all our partners information that maybe we would have kept to ourselves before. You know, but now we're out there and we're open. And I feel like the right framework is in place and the right use cases for a lot of these great operations are now available for us to expand that effectiveness. So I feel hopeful in the trajectory we're going, but also I don't want to sugarcoat how dire like some of these cyber threats that we're facing are, how much it can feel like, especially to U.S. businesses. I think the only thing I can give businesses in thinking about that is we still see cyber actors using the same methods to get onto networks. They're guessing simple passwords. They're going in through common vulnerabilities. And so there's a lot of really simple cyber hygiene steps that enable our network owners across the U.S. to counteract this wave of threats. And I think my ideal world is a world in which our actors have to spend millions of dollars and years making tools that then they try to target us selectively with, because that means when we take those down, that we have a huge impact. And it means that we're really gumming up the works of their cyber operations machine. So you must get a lot of questions, especially from people who don't exist in the world of cybersecurity. Like, what's the one piece of advice you give to people to make sure that they can be more secure? Patch. And I think that there's great services in place where you can have patch services so that it's automatic. You don't necessarily have to, you know, remember every Tuesday to go in, but enabling some of those services, ensuring that you're patching common vulnerabilities. I mean, that's really one of the key ways we see adversaries targeting us. Well, Cynthia, we could talk about this all day long, but I'm sure you've got other things to do. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.